Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 194. This episode is with the Academy Physical Development and Reconditioning Coach at Spurs, Josh Rice. Josh came on and we discussed the role of the research practitioner in football. We spoke about managing individuals' progression, um, kind of following on from last podcast with Pordy, where we discussed, obviously, some of the specific case studies at the Arsenal Academy. We also delve into how we manage individuals' progression in terms of the rehab sense and the rehab side as well. So Josh gives some examples at Spurs Academy as well, how they go about that. We also spoke about dealing with coaches throughout that process, building relationships, and again, it comes back to that, but the importance of it, and also some practical advice on how Josh has actually gone about that as well, building relationships with coaches, but also building relationships with players too. So again, loads of brilliant stuff in this one, Um, and there's obviously some top, top stuff being done down at Spurs too in the academy. Just before we get into the episode, I just want to give a quick shout out to our next couple of networking events. So as this podcast goes out, we're a week away from our next event at University Academy 92 in Manchester, Wednesday the 13th of July. We've got Shane Murphy and Warren Bradley presenting on that meeting, on that event. I've had a few people asking about the topics of those presentations Warren is going to be presenting on blood flow restriction and recovery in professional sport and Shane is going to be presenting on the movement biomechanics of professional footballers and how to improve it. So so two brilliant topics. Um, There are tickets still available for that event. We've already got a number of coaches confirmed but there are still tickets available. So go to footballfitfed.com and click the shop tab to grab your ticket or it is available over on the links on our social media. And then last week, we actually announced our next event after that as well. Wednesday, the 27th of July, we're going to be at Stoke City, the Bet365 Stadium, with Jordan White, who's Academy Sports Scientist at Stoke City, and also Nathan Plaskett, who is Derby County Club Strength Conditioning and Rehab Coach. So that is coming up as well. The early bird tickets for that event are now available, so go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop tab and grab yourself a ticket for that event because that is set to be a good one as well. So those are both available now on the website. And just finally, before we get into the episode, I've just got to say a huge thank you to our sponsors and I hope you enjoy episode 194. Rezzle is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game and train like a pro. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezzle Sports and Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezzle, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 194. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Josh Rice. Josh, how are we doing? Yeah, all good, thanks. Yourself? I'm good, thanks, mate. It's good to have you on. Thank you for freeing up some time for me. No, Um, not at all. Really looking forward to it. Good man, good man. Well, let's let's jump straight in, mate, because I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I know we've got some cool stuff to cover. Let's go into you. Like we always do, we go into the background to start with. So can you give us a little bit of background on yourself? And I've not mentioned your role or the club you're at yet. So do you want to take us into that as well? Yeah, so I guess starting from the very start, um, a very average football player, but really like loved it. So when I was 18, I made the decision to go up to John Moore's uni to do the sports science degree, but with the focus on the science of football. So did that for three years, um, and in my final year, was lucky enough to get the, the like placement internship at Everton. It was a blend across the academy and first team. Um, so I worked like with Matt Taverner, Jason O'Keefe, and Dave Flower in the first team, and then people like Jack Dowling and, and uh, John McKeown in the academy. So I had a good like experience of that. From there, it was I went on to um, to work at Liverpool for three years, doing the PhD studentship under guidance of well combination of obviously Jack Aid um, at the club for the, the applied stuff um, and then Barry Drust at the University initially of John Moores and then we transferred to University of Birmingham when he moved in his in my final year so 
yeah, so I did my PhD fully applied at the, at the club with help from James Malone, uh, Tom Brownlee and Alistair McRobert. Um, and that was a really like good process for me that I think not only let me to get like not only let me gain a good insight of working within the applied environment, but also how to blend that research into practice. So I, I was always well, I like to think I was always hoping to if I read something to bring it to the table to Jack and the other people within the department and say, oh, could we implement this or is this a good idea? Um, rather than it just being like what's always gone on within the club and, and within the sports science practice. So hopefully I was a useful part along with the other PhD students to kind of bring up-to-date research and uh, blend it into the club. And then now, um, so I actually work at Tottenham Hotspur within the academy um, under Matt Allen as the academy like reconditions uh, coach. So my main roles in terms of delivery are with the 18s and 23s. Um, like the end stage rehab, but I'll get involved from pretty much, well, not day one, but pretty much the first week in terms of some sort of gym work or fitness work with the players. Um, and then I also oversee the, the reconditioning process for the younger age group. So what the content is in liaising with the, the coaches of when they're ready to go back in, but the delivery on the younger age groups, as you can imagine with scheduling and with demands is, is a lot more minimal. So that's probably like a whistle stop stop tour of it um and yeah that's 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 kind of me at the minute brilliant mate now there's a long list and you've named a lot of people there people that come through the whole internship at everton <laughs> and even onto the role at liverpool as well yeah. like there's a lot of successes that happen from the, those routes obviously individually but also together isn't there what makes those stand out for you josh because starting with the everton we've i've spoke to a a lot of people like Dave Flower and a number of others as well. Um, the difference on that internship process, because a lot of people end up in, in good roles after it, don't they? Yeah, definitely. I think it's because obviously Everton's a massive club. And I think it's that firstly, like firstly, just developing you as a person is as in like having so much exposure to players and just talking to them as people. I think you can learn as much as you want, like out of a textbook and deliver on courses or like, have to submit essays and you might I'm sure that there was loads of people on the course that were a lot smarter than what I was but I'd like to think that the the interaction with the players and just being able to talk to them and understand how to deliver the, the, the knowledge that I do know then meant that I was in a better position to to get a job after if that makes sense and especially at Liverpool with that PhD obviously the demands that Barry placed on me in terms of the level of understanding I needed for the PhD um, and the way that we actually went about the PhD where all four of my studies were, so one was a systematic review, one was a quantitative piece, one was a qualitative piece, and then the other one was kind of like a commentary article. It was like a blend, not only of like doing a PhD, but techniques within the sports science world of how to write different papers. So an understanding of all of it, I think then gives you like a good pro like process of being able to then get a job in the real world after. Yeah, yeah, that experience is key, isn't it? And obviously drawing from some of those people that you've talked about as well and their experiences in the game is, is crucial too, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the other thing, Josh, I know you spoke about this relatively recently as well, is that role of a research practitioner within football. What are your views on that? Where do you see that fitting? Yeah, so I think it doesn't, it's not necessarily like a role as, as such. I would probably say it's just more of like how you act or how you are as a practitioner so for me like even there's someone I work with here called Adrian he's very much he, he doesn't have the the like PhD but he's very much like he looks at what the up-to-date research is whether that be from cycling whether that be from swimming but the principles behind it and thinks okay how can we deliver that into our program so what bits can we take this useful and what bits aren't so rather than it just being conversations with the coaches or with other sports scientists within the club of this is what we've always done it's worked and and it's like that's all well and good and there definitely needs to be a place for that but actually if we want to take it to the next level how can we use the up-to-date research not from textbooks but from literally like recently published articles whether that be in football or not like i've mentioned and then implement it into our work so for instance a block of running that we're doing okay we're doing 15 on 15 off the the lip like the way that people used to have done it or it's commonly known as we'll do a 15 on 15 off box to box but actually can we implement a 1500 meter time trial or a five minute distant distance trial 
and then prescribe it individually. So we might have 10 different groups where it's 15 on 15 off, but one's going 83 meters and the other one's going 75. So the 83 meters and the, 80, and the 75 are both working to their own specific capabilities. So rather than it just being generic, those little marginal gains over a course of a season, you'd like to think, and especially in a developmental program like what we have in the academy is beneficial. That's kind of a, like a brief example of why I think it's important. And then just on the back of that, you've said about looking at other sports. Is there anything else that sort of jumps out for you or, or other peers that you've taken from specifically from other sports? I think the main thing for me, without naming like research, is just the, the running side of things. So when obviously the physios take players at the start of a, like a rehab process or then when they transition to, to me, it's like, well, they might say, oh, we're doing six times two minute runs how can we make those six times two minute runs as beneficial as possible? So rather than it just being, can they run? It's like, okay, can they run, but get some sort of aerobic fitness benefit from them? So a target distance. So based like what I just said, off that distance trial, he might be running say 500 meters in that time, rather than it just being, he's just doing two minutes self-paced. So from day one, you're actually, by how much I'm not sure, but you'd like to think you're speeding up the process of them reintegrating because that the fitness gains are quicker than if they were just doing things that were unlike un, relevant to them. If we tap into the psychology of a player as well, that's going to be more beneficial anyway, isn't it? If you've, if you've got a specific target that they're trying to hit in, in that process, and I know we're going to touch on the rehab process, but that, yeah. that's surely going to be more beneficial for them as well, isn't it? Having that target set in place. Yeah, I think there's probably like sometimes a bit of a stigma around players that they don't, or they like to get the, the, the easy way out. But I think if you actually speak to players about and you have like a real good knowledge base about what you're trying to deliver them and go like, look, if we if we do this, you're coming back two weeks earlier. And whether that actually is the case or not, you know you're trying to get them back two weeks earlier, right? From say a six month injury. So if if for every bike session, it, like what bike session or CV session, they've got a target and they know that if they hit that target, they're inching closer to getting back. I think, like you said, that that mindset shift of, okay, well, I'm going to do this because it's going to have more benefit than if I kind of, for want of a better term, just toss it off. Then I think it, I think, yeah, from day one, just having some sort of actual scientific input with like evidence behind it, the players buy into it straight away because they know also, even if, <laughs> even if you might not know, you, they, you come across like you really know what you're on about as well. And I think the players just buy into your process straight away. Yeah, because we've said this a lot on the podcast, but we're dealing with competitive animals, aren't we? Like yeah. the, Whether we have that perception that players do toss off a rehab or whatever, but if you, <clears throat> if you make it competitive like that and even competitive with themselves, you're going to draw something out of them, aren't you? When especially when they're not playing. Yeah. So like I've obviously mentioned prior to you, at the club now we have like a few different fitness tests we do. Um, the, there's three predominant ones. We do a Max Gacon three times a season. Um, we do a 1500 meters, I'd say more like after a block of training. So you're looking say six to eight weeks, um, depending on obviously schedules. And then we do like a weekly or bi-weekly submax yo-yo. And for example, of what you've just said throughout the off season, I've had players text me and I'm, I'm sure Matt and, and a couple of other people the same. They've asked me, what's the app and how do I download the submax yo-yo? And they've asked, They've said, what's a good 1500 meter time trial? And it's like, they're not asking for like specific runs as such because they got their program, but they want to know because they know that they don't have to come back and do it, that that's the process is in place and they want to know that they're still competitive. So they're already talking our language without even realizing it. Yeah, definitely. Now I'm glad this podcast comes when it does because it's off the back of speaking to Pauly last week um, at Arsenal. And we spoke a lot about managing individuals progression throughout the academy system and he went into some um, specific stories about Saka and Smith Rowe and, and a number of other players as well but I thought it'd be great to sort of piggyback on that but look more at the rehab side because I know yeah. that's what you deal with um, so thinking with that in case and we have we have sort of spoke about it a little bit there already but when it when we're managing individuals especially in the rehab process what are so, some of your thought path, pathways in terms of making the most of that opportunity with them yeah the first thing i'd say is well there's two things that i'd say that i'd go for straight away 
is automatically talking to the player and knowing them as a person. So I've had a player now for six months. Sometimes I spend four to six hours a day with him. If I can't talk to him about what his missus is doing at the weekend or what he likes for dinner, then that's a long six hours. So <laughs> knowing them as a person, first of all, so that those conversations and then you're suddenly the gym session doesn't become a boring gym session. It's actually, oh, we're, we're changing the music. We're, we're doing this, doing that. And it becomes like, oh, he's almost like you're, he's not your mate because you need to know that he like you're above him and you've got your authority but it's definitely a lot it's a lot easier to implement your work if they respect you as a person and you get on with them as a human being um so that's the first thing but then at the same time within that first week probably tell them it's going to be a love-hate relationship so you're going to hate me the whole way through this uh, rehab process but hopefully four weeks back you're in training yourself and the manager's like oh actually like thanks for that. Like I've come back flying. I'm, I'm ready to play. The other thing in terms of like the real process is the way that I kind of work with the coach here is, or the coaches here is I say, I'd like to think that by the end of the rehab, that they're available for specific or a significant amount of minutes when they come back. So they're not just ready to train. They're also like ready to play. Um, that is because the way that like our model works is quite, um, it's quite fluid with the coaches. So if I've kind of like to think I've built a relationship with the coaches that if my player that I've got in rehab is ready to be within a warm up or a technical drill, but I still know that he's not going to be able to do contact for another four weeks, then he'll do the warm up in the technical drill and then he'll do his top ups and his specific work with me after. So the coach kind of like, although he's not back fully, he's kind of almost with him, giving him coaching time a month before he's actually physically or fully fit, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then when it when the time comes to play, then he's like, okay, yeah, this week he gets 45 or 60 minutes. But actually, he's not rusty on the ball because he's been with the team for X amount of time. And I, obviously, I'm a physical coach and I've been doing my UA for B, but I'm not as good as these coaches that are working here. So it's like, well, let them do their expertise and make sure that, they know that when you're doing yours, it's for the right reasons as well. Um, I don't know if I've really answered that much of that question, but <laughs> it's, a, it's an attempt. <laughs> no, you definitely have. And, and it was something that we we're going to talk about is that relationship. And we've again, we've, it's something we touched on a lot. And we're going to continually talk about it because of the fact it is so important, isn't it? And you've just mentioned there in that rehab process, again, taking it back to the player, the fact that they can be involved so early in that process, albeit not fully training at that stage is so important isn't it even just for the psychology of that of that rehab stage or phase 100 percent. and it's even the little like nuances around planning the day of so if the team prep is at half past 11 and then they're training at 12 30 well your team you're going to do your prep at the same time as the team you might have your specific program what you can get involved in with the team you can do but then you're going to have your own bits obviously like specific to the injury but then so are all the players that are in training in training anyway because we do like our generic stuff but then they'll have their own individual like player programs that they need to work on based off past injury history or if they need to do extra i don't know say extra core work because we've seen on a core capacity test they're not good so it's like it's managing that whole day really and that whole thing so that they don't feel isolated so there's like not a rehab program and a team program they're doing a rehab training session and but they're still part of the team if that makes sense they also they walk out with their teammates onto the pitch obviously this can't happen every day but as much as possible they walk out with their teammates on the pitch they do similar themes on pitch as what the team have so they feel the same after then they're doing their lower body session at the same time as the team even though there's might be like an hour and the team are just doing a maintenance session of half hour um it's just where possible making them feel part of the group so they're not like an isolated figure for for, for um yeah, like six months, for example. The same with like team meetings. It's, well, he hasn't been involved against Man United at this this weekend, but go in and like have that meeting with the team, and we'll do your rehab after. It's just making sure that they feel part of the team, even what even when they're they're actually injured. Because rehab's a hard position to be in, anyway, isn't it? But when when they are segregated, like you said, and you come out of the change rooms and they go left, and all the teammates go right. It's, yeah. that's a really hard position to be in, isn't it? So as much as, like you say, you need to do the work, the, re the rehab's got to get done. But these little things, I think, are really crucial, aren't they, to keep the player on track? 
Yeah, I think so. And obviously, the days of the the players' day in rehab is normally a lot longer than the team as well. So if they're then like, okay, I come in at nine o'clock, the team come in at nine thirty, the team have left by three, but I'm still working at four thirty. At least if that period of time of seven hours they've been working with the team, then that 90 minutes at the end, it's not going to feel as bad. The other thing I think that we've done quite well in terms of like, like we were saying in terms of the, in terms of uh, the coaches and blending the research into practice is we do do similar things within rehab, similar principles, get the ball out as early as, as we can, as what the team do. So I'll try and marry up when the team do like a sub max yo-yo on, on the pitch, for example, or when the team are doing their, intensive session so that I can speak to the coaches in the morning and be like well what type of drills are you doing and then if like for instance there's certain things in the warm-up that he's doing then I can try and do similar things so the player doesn't feel left out so I think it's just about having quite like a good multidisciplinary team as well though because I think we did especially in in the 23s where I predominantly work here I think that is really like good with our like daily morning meetings we have them sports science but then also with the physios and then we also have them with like the whole team and then we'll have a monthly meeting and just talk about how the players are getting on so there's always a lot of touch points so everyone knows where they're at and the players also know that everyone cares because they see them on a regular basis i want to just dive into the relationship building but on to with two people basically so first of all with the player because i know you've touched on it a little bit before spending so much time with the player knowing a lot about them but is there any sort of specifics? That, so when a player gets injured and then they end up coming to see you, are there any um, sort of strategies that you take or is it case by case with each player? Obviously, some are easier than others. Um, I'd say the the beauty of how I've kind of just mentioned we, how we work is that although I'm the reconditioning coach, I'm always around the team because of how we structure the, the kind of like the days. So I'll, I'll still deliver prep for the team and be in gym sessions for the team, but also take the rehab within it. So it's not like I'm just isolating myself either. So I get on with all the players. I'm, they see me every day. They don't just see me as like the reconditioning guy who's like the bad guy when he gets injured, you don't want to go there. They'll actually, they actually will see me as the performance coach as well. So I, I think because I haven't pigeonholed myself or Matt hasn't pigeonholed me into that position, um, that allows for that instant relationship. It's like, well, not hi, nice to meet you. We haven't spoken for six months it's like i see you every day this is just a different way of working now um what was the second part of the question sorry so so the second bit was going to be about the coach because we okay, just yeah. mentioned before about getting getting them integrated back into training yeah but there'll be a lot of people listening that be like well that maybe their coach isn't quite as flexible with their approach or whatever it is but how would you go about building that relationship from from day one yeah so from day one when i came into the club i had uh, a pars fracture that was passed over to me and a free C hamstring. So the first thing was like, I need to nail these two and make sure that they come back flying because that's an instant win. Um, so that was, that was really key and making sure that they didn't get re-injured, which thankfully that they were good. I think once you start bringing players back and they start, then I'd say, I know Jason's spoke a bit about this before as well. Um, if you bring a player back from injury and you see it as an opportunity to get better and they come back fitter and then they go in and then they're like top of the list within training and just on the eye, they look really good. Then instantly the coach is like, you don't even really need to have a conversation with them. It's just, they have your respect straight away. But in terms of um, creating that buy-in, it's more like what I, mentioned, what I was talking about earlier, where when you can have, or have's the wrong word, because that sounds like I own the player, but when you can pass a player into specifics of the, the coaching session it's like for me it's a no-brainer to, to give them to the coaches but then it's like when they're actually not able to do that part of training and they come out and they're working to the side of the pitch but they can see them working really hard or every time just the coaches are walking by and they see oh wow like they're working at this level so they're obviously working hard even though they're not in training then they know that it's the right time for them to be with me but then they also trust the judgment that when it's the right time to be with the coaches that I'm like because I've given them to do certain bits, they know when I say kind of like, nah, he's not actually ready to be in full training. They yeah. respect that decision, if that makes sense. Another thing that I forgot to touch on as well, that I don't know whether it's the same at every club and I'm not sure whether this is the right or wrong way to do, but something that we've, or I personally do here is 
I pretty much do all of the sessions with the players. So all of the coaches kind of like, so when we do fitness testing out on the pitch, like I'll run with the players and like with all the running, I'll run with them. When we're on the Watt bike, I'll do that. Um, which is nice because I get to eat quite a lot of food around that. Um, <laughs> but, and even some, sometimes never like lower body gym sessions, but if there's only a couple players, we might join in and do like upper body sessions with them. And I think that creates like a culture of as well of like, well, if you're willing to do it and you're willing to put yourself through that, then we also know that it's like, well, we've got to do it as well. Cause if the coach can do it and he's older than us, like, come on, we should be beating him. So I think all of it, like the coach is just walking by and seeing me sweating as much as what, the players are they know that i'm i'm making it tough for, for both of us so i think just the culmination of everything is how i've gone about it really i think with that with both of those points you just made it's mutual respect isn't it because with, when you're yeah. training alongside the player there's a respect there that you're sort of going through it at the same time but yeah. also what you took what you touched on before about the coach about having that flexibility to say right you can have them for this part of the session but then i need to have them back for that part that's the mutual respect as well isn't it because you give it you, you're both winning in that environment yeah. aren't you 100 percent, yeah no d- definitely i think it i think that is the key really i think um i think the coaches here especially um i've not experienced it a lot i know at liverpool as well paul squires and, and ollie morgan who did like like well pretty much an identical role um at liverpool is what i do here they they did the same and i think well, Squazi was, and Ollie, to be fair, they were both like really fit. So they're running in front of the players. And I think that's obviously a key thing as well. Like you can't be joining in with the session and running 50 metres behind them. <laughs> yeah. um, but like if you're joining in and you're, you're like, you're showing that you're working hard and even in the football sessions, like I'll do 1v1s with the players and you showed it, there's like a respect of, okay, he can, he can actually play football, he can run and he, he can do a little bit of everything. I think that that helps their... Um, yeah, I think that that helps the respect of the coaches and and knows that what you're doing is not just just old school rubbish work. You're actually trying to to make them better as not only like athletes but actually as players as well. Just very quickly on our online community, we've updated the community with some great content recently. The two presentations from our last networking event at Go Performing Reading. From Reading FC first team sports scientist Oliver Harrington, his presentation, Sleeping on the Job, is now available to watch back on the community. Ollie presented his research around napping and the effects of that on counter-movement jump. And Callum Stratford, academy sports scientist at Reading, also presented our jump training in football. So you can watch both of those now on the community. And also the upcoming presentations from our event in Manchester, with Shane Murphy and Warren Bradley. Both those presentations will be recorded and be uploaded after the event. And our um, event is going to be at Stoke City as well with Jordan White and Nathan Plaskett. All those presentations are going to be available. And the other one that's been really popular recently with our members has been the recent webinar, Plyometrics in Football, by the Head of Strength at Ajax, Yuri Pagel. He did a brilliant webinar for us. So go and check all of that out, plus more, on the community by going to footballfitfed.com, clicking the community tab, getting yourself signed up there, and that'll give you a 30-day free trial. After the free trial, it's only £4.99 per month going forward, and you'll get continued access to everything that's on there, plus all the future content that's going to be uploaded as well. So go and sign up today, footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, get yourself signed up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Josh Rice. And just looking at that whole um, sort of protocol in terms of the return to play, one thing we haven't touched on as much, I know you've mentioned a little little bit in terms of the monitoring you're doing, but when you're seeing that with your coaching eye that a player is potentially not quite ready, they're not at the point that, that you want them to be, you know there's some extra work needed to go in. The monitoring that you've done previously, I know that, that that will then come to the forefront because we're trying to get them to the same level, if not a better level than before. So what's yeah. your approach to that? And also how does that tie in with the coach then as well? Yeah. So I think the, the benefit of having all of our testing is that we have like, well, I'd say exit numbers or re-entry numbers, it, it, whatever you want to call it really, for how fit that player was and how he was in comparison to the team. 
So it's not just, okay, well, I know he's back at this level and he's good to go. It's actually, he's better than before or no, he's not as good before. So if you want to take this player back in training now, you have to understand that he isn't as fit as he was. So he's going to need, require some extra work around it. Um, but also he might be functionally fine to go into training. So it's also getting that blend. Um, in, ter in terms of like the monitoring, it's obviously you look at, we have loads of data and I'm sure every club's the same. You see what their normal week is. You see, well, can I make, the thing is within obviously rehab is that the numbers probably don't tell the full story because if you do like uh, like an individual session, I'm sure if you've done them in the past, just working one-on-one -on -one with a coach is normally a little bit more demanding in a team setting just because of the intensity. So the numbers don't necessarily for me in volume always need to be the 30, 35K weeks, but the intensity and the meters per minute of each metrics and, and the demands of the, the actual actions that are undetectable by GPS need to make sure that you've got those. So little things just like, not just, uh, okay, in this week we've done 800 meters of high speed and that's his average. But if he's only done that over four efforts of 200 meters because he's done like high speed, a lot of high speed running or 200 meters is probably a bad example, but say he's done eight efforts of 100 meters high speed, but in a, in a week he does it over uh, like 30 efforts. It's like, well, have we actually really ticked that off? Because for me, that's that's a different load, like physiologically than doing 30 short, sharp, high-speed efforts than just doing 800 metres. Yeah. So I guess it's just understanding what they the player did prior to getting an injury, reverse engineering it, trying to get his close or if if better than he can, and then and then putting him back into training. So, And then, like you said, if, if they're not based on testing, then it might be, okay, well, look, you wanted to be in training, but we haven't worked hard enough. So this afternoon, we'll go to the pool and do a CV, or we'll do an upper-body CV work. To, to try and improve that you can only get them as close as possible but you'd like to think that those little small wins the players buy into because there's actual data to be like well you're not at that level so you won't be as good as you think you are when you go back into training and the coach is the same they know that they won't be because the data is there to show and how are you prioritizing that because you just mentioned before that the amount of data that you'll be collecting and um, I'm sure there's a lot of clubs that are in the same position. You end up with so much data. Like how are you then picking out the important parts that, to prioritise? I think the same reverse engineering it. So what is the, the month that they're about to go into probably is a big thing to look at. If it's double game weeks and you've got your, your A-grade player, um, I know you shouldn't really say that there's A or B-grade players, but we know everyone, knows that, everyone <laughs> yeah. knows that that's the thing. Yeah. And you've got an A-grade player, you know that the manager is probably going to go, oh, you can play 45, but that 45 turns into 60 or 90. Well, maybe you kind of sell it as actually he's a little bit more time with me because look at the demands of what he's going to go into. So that would be a combination of what GPS his numbers are. At the end of rehab, I try and do something which I got off of like well, the principle off of Ollie Morgan, like a match simulation. So look at their data in like an acute out of a game. Won't go after the volume of like 10 to 12K. It might end up being like seven to eight, but they might do within a game, it's normally ball and play time somewhere between 50 to 55 minutes. So they'll do like two 25 or 27 minute halves of their specific actions to their game. And then they'll just work and we just call it like a match simulation. So it's like the intensity of a game, you'd like to think you've replicated. So then you could be confident, well, he's probably ready to, to play a significant amount of the game in terms of a data point. And then on top of that, his his um, his physical testing, not just like his on-pitch testing, but his off-pitch. So obviously you want to get his, the players as symmetrical as possible if they've had certain lower limb injuries, um, as strong as possible. Okay, he's, he's actually ready to go. So it's a, it's a combination of everything. I, I don't think you'd ever pigeonhole it just to he's fit enough to go but he's fit enough but he's got a 10 centimeter deficit in in his like counter movement jumps his single leg counter movement jumps it's like well he's not ready to go is he yeah yeah it's all about the big picture at that point isn't it yeah. and that's where again we go back to like the relationships and this discussions and i'm going to talk about language and stuff in a second but that's where that's so yeah. important isn't it because yeah. if they're not in play everyone's looking at individual aspects of it rather than the big picture like you just touched on yeah, hundred percent. So, in terms of that, the language is key, isn't it? When we when we're um, communicating with coaches, you you talked about it before we started recording, which I thought was really really key. But when you're communicating with coaches throughout that process, when it is at a time when maybe they're 
tempted to go, no, we'll get the player back and we'll we'll do more minutes or whatever it's going to be. That's then crucial for you to be uh, communicating effectively, isn't it? At that point. Yeah. So I think the the a thing that me and Matt have spoken a lot about is is trying to rule out the subjectivity of decision making as much as possible. Um, and from that, that's why we do we do do quite a lot of testing at Tottenham. But I think in terms of our injury our injury history, especially within the 23s over the last couple of years, like our availability has been really good. And I think it's because we've hopefully been able to make like good decisions based upon data rather than just, okay, he looks fit, he's good to go. So for us, it was like we were saying about recently implementing those physical testing. We've tried to change the mindset of the coaches, I think, without them really knowing, if that's the right way to say, of how, rather than them asking how fit they are, and you just saying, yeah, he looks fit. It's they're asking the specifics, like how good is 1500 meter time trial? How good is sub max? And because we've spoke to the coaches and delivered the data in a way where they understand it, they're able to look at it and go, oh, well, he's not ready. Like, so why are you even consider, why are we even having this conversation? So then those tough, those tough conversations where it's just like, oh, but he looks good. It doesn't even really become a thing because there's actually, everyone's on the same page in terms of they're, they're speaking our language without even re really realizing it. If, if that makes sense to some degree. Um, and the same in, in terms of the way we deliver physical feedback at the games, we won't always like, we, we, we look at team totals as well as individuals. So how did we work as a team? Not just as, okay, he done like, so what is the effectiveness of his work, for example? So we've got one or two players that just run a lot and do a lot of high speed but sometimes they're not that effective. So put into a team context, like they might, we might have all this data, but we might not win the game. So it's like, well, actually, is it based upon those individuals who, although they're running a lot, we're not doing a lot with the ball. So it's just about gradually over time, building relationships to understand what the coaches want to see, what you want them to see of what you're working, and then kind of finding that mutual ground. So the discussions are very much like, not in a scientific language whatsoever, but there's like some underpinning of like, yeah, sports science really as well. It's the education of sports science and what you're trying to achieve, I suppose, isn't it? Because yeah. those subjective questions on how fit is he or we always talk about them not moving well and all that sort of stuff. It's like probably everyone has different perceptions depending on what role they're in on what they actually mean, don't they? Whereas you're ruling that out with this because we're saying like this is the specifics of what we're looking at. Yeah, hopefully. And and I think as well, there's still definitely a place of for coaches to uh, we've definitely had coaches we've where we've been running players in a straight line going, Oh, he's not moving very well. But there's there's also like a rationale that he's he's good enough to run in a straight line. But we'll have a discussion when we're inside and be like, I know he doesn't look good and we would never think about him turning around on the pitch, but he can run in a straight line and get fit in a straight line and progressively over time we're working on this but he's at a position to do this specific work so those conversations still do happen but i think because they know that we're, we've got like we've got data behind it that they know that we're kind of putting good decisions in place rather than it just being yeah we think he's good to go so that's that's how i think it, it's worked here to be honest yeah, there's obviously a good understanding there, isn't there? And again, it's I think it's the respect and the relationship, isn't it? That's what it's coming back to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that doesn't, it's not an easy thing to, to build. And obviously there's times when like, we have had players that get injured and it, it does get frosty, but they know that you're, you have got the good intentions of the player. Um, and I think at the 23s here, we treat it close to like a first team environment as well, to some degree, where the demands of putting players back into training and being ready for a game are close to that other first team. I know it's it's not as demanding because they're not worth eighty million pounds. And like some of the names that you mentioned, that Paldi was mentioning, like they're not the players that we're working with right now. Um, but there's still a demand that well, he's missing vital time to to become a professional footballer with the first team. So no, he needs to play against Chelsea at the weekend. Brilliant, Josh. Have you got any sort of final thoughts of wrapping that up, or do you feel like we've covered everything that we said? I feel like, yeah, from what we mentioned before, I think we're pretty close to it. Pretty close to it, yeah. Perfect, if you're happy mate. With that. Yeah, awesome. I, I was just going to move on to some of the uh, quick fires. 
that we finished okay. the finished the podcast with, which I know I've not told you about, so I'm dropping this on you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you've mentioned a number of names there, like, and I think that alone it highlights the importance of having good people around you. Um, yeah. But also, is there anyone, including those people, obviously that you've already mentioned? Yeah. Who have been some of the most uh, or the biggest influences on your career so far? I think I'll go with this in two ways. I think there was there was a couple of seasons when I was at Liverpool um, when in our office we had Jack Aid, um, Ollie Morgan, we had uh, Jordan Milsom, we had, I know this is like name dropping sports science practitioner, uh, Tom Maynard, um, who else did we have? And then obviously we had like Tom King, Dave Robshaw, and, and people like that who have all gone on like and Adam Rowan who's now at Man City we were all within the same department at that time and obviously as a young practitioner I'm not saying I haven't worked in other good departments like what I'm working in now but at that time of my journey I think that was my first year at Liverpool the conversations that I were listening to were way in advance of what I've heard on the like in terms of specific to football were way in advance of what I'd heard on my course so yeah. that was vital for that year of learning for myself as just a co combination of the group. In terms of like the biggest person influence, I'd, I'd probably have to say, because of the opportunity that he, he gave me and he still almost acts as like a mentor, like Barry Drust has really helped me um, on a personal level as well, because there's been tough times like living away from home, like personal relationships and, and stuff like that. But also is just making me think about things in a in a scientific way, but blending them into that, to that applied setting. I, I don't think there's anyone better than at that than Barry. Like the conversations, the way that you ask him a question, the way that he responds makes you think about why did I even ask that question? That's not relevant, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so as one individual, I'd say because of how long I've worked with him from the start of my degree in 18 to all the way now when I'm 26, still working and I'm still in contact with him uh, over everything, I'd say he's probably like a really big influence so far, yeah. Brilliant. What would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner? Um, my biggest strength? I'd say, I'd like to think that building the relationships, the work that I can, that I'm delivering to the players um, is done as, as good as possible is my biggest, my, my, like, my biggest strength. Like this, this summer, um, I went away abroad with a few players that I'd worked with like prior and got invited to train them on holiday. And I think that like, those opportunities come about from building good relationships um, and doing like, those are the rewards that I like to think are because not only am I hopefully delivering a good work over there, but the other 22 hours a day when we're not training, they're happy to just talk to me as a human being, but then putting that back into what I'm doing at the club, I'd like to think that that's also replicated so that just the delivery of the sports science becomes easy because you're doing a bench press, but you're talking to them after about something else. It just makes yeah. that session a lot easier. Yeah, but there's 100%. also on that, I think that there's definitely a fine line between build it, being a, like becoming a mate of theirs and still delivering. So I think that's the key as well, like building a relationship, but also getting that balance of knowing that you'll have that authority. Um, so yeah, that's probably, I'd like to think my biggest strength. They've got to know that the work's still got to get done, haven't it? Yeah. And that, that's the important thing that you can't you can't be just falling into just the mate, can you? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, brilliant. Josh, I'm taking you back now. Pre-Everton, pre-internship, like what would you, if think of yourself back then, what would be your biggest advice to Josh back then? Uh, my biggest advice? In terms of career advice? Yeah. I think it would be so... When I went to uni, I did focus a lot on having fun, but also on the on the work side of things as well. I kind of, I was in, I was fortunate in terms of my family that I I did some part time work, but I wasn't like really needing to do that part time work. But I would go out and seek opportunities to um, to to coach a little bit here and there. I was involved within the football team. I was just trying to immerse myself as much as possible, and I think that that helped in terms of when I went in, then I was able to. I know you, it's not really right that you say you can play football, but even in my interview with Matt, it was like part of it he said was when I went out and delivered on the pitch, it was, can you just kick a ball? So I think being able to kind of have all that sports science knowledge, but then just understand football as a football practitioner is really key. Um, and just like even little things, like sometimes you go out onto the pitch and then you've, 
you you're told you get this size area you go out and the goalkeepers are working here so suddenly i've got a 20 by 20 grid and i haven't planned for that the fact that i've watched football for so long and think about different movements and stuff you can just think on the spot and the player almost doesn't realize that this isn't the session you've planned but you're also delivering in a good way so just if you see as much stuff as you can when you're younger then when you come to to working within the field then you kind of can just think on your feet i think yeah that's a really interesting point isn't it because we've spoke about that before where you get i don't know whether this is harsh to call non-football people coming into football there's i think there are benefits to that but then at the same time if you think about going into a spot that you know nothing about you don't have all that background behind you, do you? The, and the experience of just watching games, playing as a as a kid, or even what like playing games as a as a young lad or whatever, to be able to adapt like that. And that's a it's quite an interesting um, thought process, isn't it? Behind non football people and football people. Yeah, I think definitely it's definitely tough, but it's the same, I guess, with coaches. That a lot of coaches are ex players. It's yeah, a lot of a lot of like you go in and you're judged. Like I remember my first day here. Like a couple of coaches would be just out on the pitch waiting to warm up and they just start wrapping balls into you. And that you know that they're just like playing around with you or whatever, but you know that they're judging you as well slightly. <laughs> and then they're going to go back into all the coaches and go, cool, he's wearing like Adidas trampolines out there. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's like, you know that you, you have to have a little bit, otherwise you can get found out rightly or wrongly just because that's the nature of the beast, I guess. Yeah. Well, that first touch, it's stuck with it, yeah? Well, I don't know. I'm still here at the minute. I'm still here at the minute, so hopefully. Josh, last one. Um, what is your approach to CPD, continued education? I know you've done loads of great research so far. I'm sure there's probably a bit more to come as well. Like, What's, what's your approach to that? So for me, I think building the CV was the initial thing. So um, I think, obviously, go, I've got my UK final UK six. UK SCA exam in September. Um, I'm also close to completing the bases and the UEFA B. And then obviously like with the PhD, I've tried to build my CV up as much as possible. So then anything after that is like CPD of what I'm interested in. Yeah. The thing for me with CPD would be obviously reading, um, which I won't lie since finishing the PhD, I kind of did take a little bit of a break. Um, but then just going out and, and probably doing CPD events that are nothing like, like nothing like what you've ever looked at really so going and doing like a physio event on the achilles because if you can understand and talk to the physio about the achilles and understand why they're doing that maybe that would influence your strength programs and then the other thing as well is similar to this podcast i've, I've never done one before they're just saying yes and um i've been asked to speak at the bases event in the king power which i've never presented before and that's in november so i'm going to be nervous about that and probably shouldn't wear like a gray or blue blue shirt um <laughs> but just things like that, just immerse yourself because it's only going to kind of like develop you, I guess, is, as a person. And if you flop, then it is what it is, isn't it? No, oh, mate. So that's a, a great bit of advice for people, isn't it? Because it, essentially that's getting out of the comfort zone. It's testing yourself yeah. as a practitioner, isn't it? Because you're having to deliver. And it, I think as, as nervy and um, as anxiety-filled as some of those, <laughs> those things are, it always comes out and works better, doesn't it, long-term, because you learn lessons along the way. I think so. Even like the PH, even with the PhD, you, you'd ask like people that knew me at the time when you're taking it on. They'd, like I was always interested in working in sports science and, and being a coach or whatever. But the PhD, like I was never unbelievable at like English. I, Barry will tell you, he didn't expect me to be the person from sports science to, to the degree that I was on to go in kind of like do what I'm doing because I did like playing football at the team and I was with the football crowd kind of thing, but just immersing on that and being like, okay, yeah, I can write 300 words. Not a lot of people are going to read it, so it should be okay. Um, it's just, yeah, immersing yourself in whatever you can because eventually when it's done, it, it will benefit you. Brilliant, mate. Well, this has been class, Josh. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for coming on. Just wrap us up, mate. Just give people uh, the place they can go to sort of get in touch or keep an eye on uh, what you've got going on. Yeah, so to be honest with you, uh, I'm not really that active on social media at all. But my Twitter, I believe it's Josh Rice 8 um, or Josh Rice 95. That's how active I am on it. Uh, the thing is, Josh I think Rice it's 95. 95. I think yeah. it's 95. Um, so yeah, that shows you how active I am on it. Um, <laughs> maybe I need to. Maybe I need to start 
but that, that's the main one really or LinkedIn obviously just Josh Rice so yeah perfect mate well thank you very much for doing it I really appreciate it I think we covered some really good stuff there and you gave some really good insights as well so thank you very much no cheers Ben thanks for having me on been, been really good Big thank you for listening to the podcast. You can go and check Josh out over on social media. He's at Joshua Rice 95 over on Twitter. And he's also on LinkedIn. Just search his name, Josh Rice. Takeaways on this one for me. Just initially, he, got, he talks about getting loads of applied experience early on, which I think is really, really important. And again, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but there's plenty of opportunities out there to go and get applied experience, whether it's in a voluntary format or, or whatever, just pick up that experience early on because it's absolutely crucial, not only in terms of the experience you're getting, but also the contacts that you're creating in those environments too. Just on that as well, we have had a few contacts recently from clubs um, saying that there, are, there have been a few opportunities. So if you are looking early on in your career for that first job, that first opportunity, some of them are either unpaid or uh, just covering travel costs and things like that, just to, to put an early warning out there. But if you are looking for something like that, just reach out, mail at, fit, uh, mail at com, and hopefully I'll be able to point you in the right direction. Um, other takeaways on this one, he talked about not isolating the player in the rehab setting, which I think was really important. Try and keep the the um, schedule of the player and the routines of the player as similar to when they're playing as possible. Obviously, the rehab needs doing, but can we um, keep them involved with the team as much as possible, not shut them away from the team and then reintroduce them when they are fit and ready to go again? And then the other side of that was not isolating yourself as a coach. So if you are working in the rehab side of S&C or sports science, it's making sure that you're being involved with the players day to day so when a player does then come into a rehab program, it's like Josh mentioned it, it's not a case of introducing yourself to the player. They know you already, you know them. And it's just, a, right, this is, a, this is a slight change that we're going to make to our program because we're going to work for your rehab program. But you know all about them. You've got all the links that Josh talked about, things that you can speak about. That's already set in place. And then the other one, which I'm sure some, some people will do, other people probably won't, is joining in sessions. We spoke about this as being like a mutual respect from the player to you, going through it, you're going through it with them. Obviously, there's some stuff that you probably want to be coaching them on and, and you don't want to be joining in, but there's other things that, like, for example, Josh was referencing a few runs and things like that, that you can. You've just got to roll the sleeves up and go through it with them and push yourselves, and, and, and I'm sure they'll appreciate that as well. So... They're my takeaways. I've, I've got a list of a number of other different things as well, but they're some of the key ones I took away from the episode. So I hope you enjoyed the chat with Josh. We've got some big, big podcasts coming over the next few weeks as well, and I hope to confirm a few more. So make sure you stay tuned and share the podcast where possible. And make sure you go and check out our sponsors, Rezzle. They're doing a great job in cognitive training. Um, and all the VR technology that's out there. So go and check those guys out at Rezzle over on social media. And I'll speak to you again next week in episode 195.